As Pastor JP mentioned, we are on an eight-week journey through the book of Philippians on a sermon series that we've titled, Christ Our Joy. Christ Our Joy. And as we've been getting familiarized with this four-chapter letter, it's a very short book, actually. Very short book. You could probably read it in like 20 minutes from front to back. Written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi from imprisonment. We've actually seen how ironically, even though this is a letter that is written from imprisonment, it is the happiest of all letters. It is, you know, sometimes when I picture in my mind what the Apostle Paul probably looked like, I feel like he would be something, somebody really serious, like doesn't really crack a smile or like crack a joke here and there. I feel like he'd be really serious and very like task oriented. And if it doesn't have anything to do with the gospel, I don't want anything to do with it. But when we see in this letter, we, the, the, the apostle that we see in this letter is brimming over with joy. This whole letter from the very beginning all the way to the very end, it is one word that keeps getting repeated over and over and over and over again, 16 times that is rejoice. This is a book of rejoicing. This, as we are going through uh, the sermon series, this is my desire that we as a church, you know, sometimes when we look at the Bible, we feel a bit insecure in our, in our ability to handle and understand most of the Bible. But what if after these eight weeks, we can at the very least feel like we have somewhat of a handle on the book of Philippians, on those four chapters. And so we're going verse by verse. We're going chapter by chapter. And um, over the last few weeks, we've laid out the following. You know, the first sermon was on rejoicing in the fellowship of the saints. What it means for us to rejoice in our ability to gather in this way. This is more than just, you know, an X number of people meeting in this kind of room. This is a gathering that is sacred unto the Lord. And so the, our first uh, message was on rejoicing in the fellowship of the saints. Second message was on rejoicing over afflictions. Uh, Pastor JP preached last week about rejoicing in your sanctification. In those moments when we feel like, God, are you even working in my life? You know, I don't see any difference. In those moments, we are called to rejoice that the Holy Spirit is at work and we're called to work out our salvation and he is doing it in us. And so today this brings us to rejoice in fellowship of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Can everybody say Epaphroditus? One more time, Epaphroditus. That's probably the first time you've ever said that word out loud, right? It is such an unusual name, right? So today is, um, today's message is rejoice in fellowship of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, full disclaimer, okay? I, as a preacher, you know, there's certain passages that I tend to gravitate to that are actually a bit easier to preach on. And there's certain ones that you kind of want to kind of skip over. But when you're doing a sermon series like this, you don't have that luxury. You actually have to preach in every part of the letter, every part of the word. And what that does actually is that it grows your confidence in the fact that this whole book All of it, even the genealogies, even the 13 cubits by 14 cubits for the temple, you know, like that kind of stuff. All of it, it's inspired by the breath of God. It is written by the finger of God. It is God's word for us. And it can actually bring life if we would open up our hearts to it. Does that make sense? All of the word, all of the word, even the ones that we feel like we kind of gloss over very quickly. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so even today, this is admittedly for me. At first sight, I was like, how can we make a a sermon out of like 
Timothy and Epaphroditus, it feels like supporting characters in this, like, you know, big, you know, larger narrative. Why are we focusing on these supporting characters? And so that was at first sight what I felt. But as I was studying, as I was preparing for today's message, I realized that there's just so much for us to learn from these two characters. And so with that said, we're going to open up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. If you have your physical Bibles with you, I always encourage you to open it up there so you can write notations and you can also follow along. If you don't have your physical Bibles with you, you can look through your phone or I also have uh, some slides for you up here in the front. So I'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 in the ESV. And it reads, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will, genuine, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy, Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, we see in this section, is rejoicing over fellowship with these two individuals, one called Timothy and one called Epaphroditus. And he is gushing over them. He exhorts the church of Philippi to do the same. He says, you see these men? You should rejoice over them. You should honor them. You should welcome them back. He points to them and he makes an example out of them. So we're going to take a quick look at these two men. The first one, Timothy, he was probably about maybe 25 years younger than Apostle Paul, about 25 years younger. So very much his, uh, his younger counterpart, a disciple of his that regardless of his youth, he responded to the call to minister alongside Paul, many times often risking his life, courageously and tirelessly working to advance the gospel. He was a brother in arms. He was a comrade in the fight of one vision and of one purpose along with Paul. Timothy was a disciple of his, and he was sold out for the cause, and he was one with Apostle Paul. You know, like... You know, when you meet someone and you feel like you guys click and it's like, oh, you're kind of cool. You think we can hang out sometime? It was more than that. It's like they realized that what connected them was that they were of one will, one purpose, one gospel, one mission that they had. And so that was the kind of close relationship that Timothy and Paul had. 
Now, Epaphroditus, this is the only part in the Bible that he is mentioned, Epaphroditus. It's a name that we don't talk about too much. He was actually a delegate from the church of Philippi. So remember that this is a letter that's been written to a particular church in a city called Philippi. And the church, when they heard that he was imprisoned, they sent one man to go and minister to him. Now, when we read this, we think like, well, Paul's in Rome and Philippi is somewhere there. It might be pretty close. No, it's actually over 7,000 kilometers away. And we're not talking by KTX. We're not talking by, you know, like seven, over 7,000 kilometers away through land and sea to get to where Paul was in order to minister to him, to see to his needs. So Epaphroditus was a delegate from Philippi, and he was a gift to Paul in his time of imprisonment. He traveled all the way over to Rome, and he was working so hard to serve him and laboring so hard to see the gospel uh, continuing to advance that he became ill and almost died. Now, I work really hard for this church, but I don't think there's ever been a time where I almost died for this church. But this is that kind of committed guy. He almost died in order to serve the needs of Apostle Paul in his imprisonment and also to continue to see that the gospel would move forward. And so he almost died, but thankfully he recovered. And Paul says, he is so like, oh, like, oh, oh, what a relief, right? I'm so grateful that God spared me of the sorrow. If he had died, then I would be sad and you guys would be sad. It would be a loss for everybody. But thankfully, he's gotten better and I'm about to send him back to you guys. So these two men are a lifeline and an indispensable gift to Paul in this moment of imprisonment. And no matter how hard it is for him in the moment, he takes the time to recognize what a beautiful blessing God has given to him through these two men. Instead of Apostle Paul, oh, woe is me, I'm imprisoned, I'm wallowing in my self-pity, instead of becoming bitter and self-absorbed and pulling away from everyone, he lifts up his head and he recognizes the difficulty of the moment and the provision of God for this difficult season. So this is an exhortation that doesn't come off very lightly. He's not like, hey, guys, why don't you just rejoice? What's the big deal? Somebody who's going through a very challenging season in his life, he calls us to rejoice. And because of these three reasons, the first reason, rejoice because whether you know it or not, in your seasons of need, God sends you Timothy's and Epaphroditus's. I don't know if that is the plural of it. I looked it up. I didn't get any like any answers. And so that's what we're going to go with today. Timothy's and Epaphroditus's. Rejoice because in those moments of need, God sends you these kind of people. In Apostle's greatest moment of need, God provided Timothy and Epaphroditus as a timely support. And the Apostle Paul, no matter how strong he was, he is like one of the most hardcore people in this entire Bible, right? That's the way that I picture him. No matter how strong he was, no matter how zealous he was, no matter how self-sufficient he was, he's not ashamed to say, I need these men in my life. I need these kind of brothers in my life. I need Timothy's and I need Epaphroditus's people who would support him in his time of need, people that would visit him in imprisonment to serve him in the same, and in the same way to risk their life for him as well. People that would be God's hands and feet in a moment when he probably felt most 
alone and most at the mercy of someone else. He needs Timothy's. He needs Epaphroditus's. Now, let me ask you, if you were to think back on one of those moments in life where you went through incredible challenge, you went through incredible testing or trial, if you were to think back on those dark moments that you've gone through, those moments when you felt completely alone, when you weren't sure you're going to make it through, those moments you just didn't think you'd make it, if we were to go back and think on those moments, we would probably remember at least one person that unexpectedly served you, that unexpectedly reached out for you, that unexpectedly cared for you in those moments. Now, this past week, I was catching up with like Leon Panita, and as I was talking about different things that I've gone through in my life, I was talking about a very particular season in my life about 10 years ago. And I, I forget what it was like 10 years ago. It, I'm not, I, I wasn't as young as you would probably think I was back then. I was already in ministry 10 years ago, right? Um, and so during that time, when that was probably one of the most challenging times in my life for a period of about like two, three years. And during that time, as I was kind of retelling the story to Lee and Panita, I began to go through in my mind and I began to remember all those people that served me in ways that maybe I didn't notice in the moment, people that reached out to me in ways that I probably didn't even know how to ask. And they were the ones that took care of me during a very difficult season of my life. I can think of I, they're probably not listening to this. So that's okay for me to put them, you know, it's cause it's a good thing. Okay. So I remember people like one of my roommates, her name was Joan. And you know, I was living on full-time support at that time as well in the States. And she didn't have the finances to be able to support me. But the one thing that she could do is she could cook really well. And so she would see me, you know, waking up really early in the morning, coming back really late, barely being able to grab anything to eat in between, sometimes like going for McDonald's way too often, like all of that. And the one thing that she could do to support me was to cook for me. And so whenever she cooked, she always made sure to cook extra so that I could eat. She, she would force me to eat when I didn't want to eat, like all that stuff. It was, I didn't ask for it, but this was her way of supporting me and blessing me. I can think about all those, uh, what do you call it, uh, sambes, like older people uh, above me who, when I didn't have a car, they would wake up extra early. They would give me rides to everything I needed to. I can think about people who I still keep in touch with today who out of, you know, their, their you know, first few paychecks, they decided to begin to support me as a full-time minister. And, you know, even when I transitioned here to Korea, and this was a church that had nothing to do with them, they continued to support me when I served here as a support-raising uh, staff as well. I can think of, you know, a pastor who worked alongside me and he saw that I didn't have a car and he reached out to his own network and said, does anybody have an extra car lying around? And then, you know, somebody who had an extra car all the way, I was living in North Carolina. It, they were living in Florida. And so he went all the way down to Florida to drive up that car all the way to North Carolina in order that I would be able to use it for free. So people like that, That if I didn't have that, maybe I would have made it through. But this was their act of support and love in a time when I didn't even know how to ask that I needed help. These are the people that I know that I'm indebted to. These are the people that I know God sent my way in my time of need. These are my Timothys. These are my Epaphroditus's. So when I think about these people, 
And I look back on this time, as difficult as that time was for me, it's not all bad. I can't help but rejoice. I can't help but be grateful. Yes, those were probably the hardest seasons of my life. But I remember so clearly these people that God sent along my way to help me in my time of need. And I can't help but to rejoice. I can't help but to be thankful. So this is my question to you. Who are your Timothys? Who are your Epaphroditus's? Who are the people that God has brought into your life who unexpectedly checked in on you? Who took the time to listen to you and to pray for you? Who are those that showed you God's steadfast love when you felt most forgotten, when you felt most neglected? Maybe there are reason for you to rejoice today. Maybe there are reason for you to give thanks to God today. So the Apostle Paul's exhortation to us as a church and as believers of Christ is there's a reason to rejoice because God sends help. Whether we see it or we appreciate it or not, he provides hope in the middle of the struggle. And sometimes it's not through the audible voice of God. Sometimes it's not through a dream or a burning bush. Sometimes it is through the humble hands and feet of someone who reaches out to you and serves you in that moment of need. God sends helpers. God sends words of encouragement. God sends a tangible reminder that you are not alone in those moments. That's my first point. Rejoice because God sends you Timothys and Epaphroditus's. My second point is it doesn't just stop there. We are called to rejoice because God doesn't just send you people like that. He makes you people like that. Did you know that God is making you into Timothy? God is making you into an Epaphroditus? Because in the passage that we read from Philippians today, you know, we read two people, we read about two people who weren't the star of the show. You know, they weren't the top dog. They weren't like, you know, the, the person that, you know, everybody was looking at. And yet they were honored and commended for their humility and their service. Their example of Christ-like love in putting someone else's interests above their own, putting their very own lives on the line to serve someone else. I love that the Bible does this over and over and over and over again. God loves to put the spotlight on the people that we would consider those like, oh, supporting characters, minor characters in this grand narrative, the less important ones, you know, those that we can't even pronounce their name when we come across their names in the Bible. And it helps us to realize that there is no one that is unimportant to God. There's no one that is unseen by God. There's no one that is uncelebrated by God. This is such a relief because it means that we don't all need to be Paul's. You know, we don't all need to be the center of attention. It doesn't have to be about us. God is making us into servants. God is making us into Timothy's and Epaphroditus's. Now, I was reading about uh, this biography about someone by the name of Hen Henry Nowen, and he is someone who passed away, you know, in the late 90s. He was a renowned Dutch Catholic priest, a theologian and an author, and you might know him from books like um, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, The Way of the Heart, The Wounded Healer. These are just some of the books uh, that he wrote. He was wildly successful, 
of great repute. Like people all over the world wanted to have him speak at their seminaries, speak at their churches. Everybody, this was like the man. He was at the top of his field. He had reached the climax of, of how high you can go, you know, within his area of expertise. And at the height of his career, when he was at the very top, he felt God calling him to lay all of that down and to pick up and leave and serve at a community that was tucked away. And it was a community of developmentally impaired people. It was called the Arc, or in, in French, my French is terrible. I don't have any French, actually. It's non-existent. It's the Arc, something like that. Anyway, the Arc the ark. Um, and so he, he felt like God was calling to lay everything down, his success. And an equivalent of that would be like, they have an incredible website going. He has book tours going. He has 5 billion Instagram followers. I don't know what would be the equivalent of that, like at the top of his field and everybody wants him at the top of the game. That's when God calls him to lay everything down and to go and reside in obscurity in the midst of a community that probably would never acknowledge his giftings at all. People who are developmentally handicapped. So it meant that no matter what his oratory and what his theology and how many books he had written, that serves no purpose in that kind of community. And he felt like God called him to reside there, and he had something to learn there. And so he resided there for nine months and then, you know, it took some time off. And then he actually spent the last 10 years of his life there in relative obscurity. It was in this place where he felt like God spoke to him most profoundly about love. What it means to love someone sacrificially and what the worth of a human life is, even if they cannot understand what you're saying even if they'll never acknowledge what you carry, even if they will never figure out that you are somebody really famous and you're probably not worthy of their time or yada, yada, yada. Even with that, God was teaching him about the worth of human life. He was saying, these people that you're surrounded by right now that will not applaud you in the way that the world applauds you, they will never acknowledge what you carry. These are sacred people in my sight. These are people worth living for, worth serving until you die. Can you imagine what that meant for someone in his stature? Someone who was considered a highly sought-after intellectual. Someone so gifted in his preaching and in his writing. Someone so at the top of their field to have to leave all of that and serve a hidden, unknown community of people that were considered outcasts in society because of their mental handicap. People who wouldn't even understand or appreciate him. And he would learn to love, learn to serve, learn humility, learn to follow God's leading, not feeling like he is missing out on his best life now. Not feeling like, oh man, what if I had just stayed? Like, oh, like what if I could still have, you know, all that, all that celebrity and fame. To be able to not feel like he's missing out on his best life now and to be able to humbly and joyfully 
serve in that place. I can't even begin to imagine because in our day and age, we're taught to excel. We're taught to gain mastery over a skill or an area of expertise, to build a career, to build a reputation, to make a name for yourself, to network with the right people, to climb the corporate ladder, to make a name for yourself. We're taught to associate yourself to the best, most famous, most well-respected people. That is the world that we live in today. But what if God gave you everything you've ever wanted and propelled you to the top of your field and then suddenly asked you to leave all that and step off into obscurity? Would we be able to follow? Would we be able to walk in his footsteps? Would we be able to live where no one knows what you've accomplished? Where you don't feel celebrated? Where you aren't appreciated? where you get to watch someone else become everything you've ever wanted to be. And you just need to observe from afar in the forgotten shadows, your yesterday's star, yesterday's celebrity. And now you're discarded and you are forgotten. I don't know. I don't know if I would have the strength to do it. But I know that this is what the Bible speaks about when he calls us to become Timothy's and Epaphroditus's. God will find ways to save us from our own egos. He will deliver us from our self-absorbed ways, our need to be the center of attention, our need to be constantly validated, our addiction to the applause and to the approval of men. He'll find ways to crucify my flesh. And it's not out of punishment. It's not out of cruelty. It's mercy. It's love. It's sanctification. It's Christ-likeness. It's his commitment to us, his promise to make us more and more like Christ. I came across an Instagram post the other day, and it read, Shallow, no-cost Christianity will not prepare you to die for the gospel because it doesn't even prepare you to die to self. Once again, shallow, no-cost Christianity will not prepare you to die for the gospel because it doesn't even prepare you to die to self. And this is so true in our lives until we start seeing the gospel as a call to die to ourselves so that then we can truly live. We'll always live this half-dead like one foot in, one foot out kind of existence, or you kind of are denying yourself. Hopefully this is dead enough for you, God, but never fully surrender to what God has in store for us. And what God has in store for us is life, freedom, and a profound joy that is reserved for those who call themselves followers of Christ. There will be times and there will be ways that God will send Timothy's and Epaphroditus's your way. And there will be times and ways that God will make you a Timothy. He will make you an Epaphroditus to someone else. He'll call you to serve someone else. He'll call you to put your interests and your ambitions aside and learn to truly love someone else. And in our weakness, we try to find loopholes around this. And reasons why, well, I'm exempt from this. You'll find spiritual language that can hide the fact that you are running away 
from something God is calling you to do, and that is to die to yourselves. But in those moments, in those moments when we resist and we try to squirm out of, squirm ourselves out of that, we need to be reminded that Jesus not only sends you help and he not only makes you a servant, but that he himself is the ultimate servant. He himself is the ultimate servant. And that is my third point. Rejoice because Jesus is the ultimate Timothy. He is the ultimate Epaphroditus. He's okay with serving a support role in your life. God not only brings Timothy's and Epaphroditus's into our lives, he himself became the quintessential Timothy, the quintessential Epaphroditus. And he not only risked his own life to serve us like Epaphroditus did, he actually lost his own life to save us, that we would find forgiveness for our sins, that we would find healing for our brokenness, and that we would find restoration with God once for us who were once cut off. So if you ever find yourself in a place where you cannot, you're looking around and you cannot see the people God has sent to encourage you, and you cannot see what God is doing in you to make you more like him, I hope you're able to cling to at least this one thing, that Jesus is the quintessential servant of all. He serves you and I, And he did it with joy in his heart for the joy set before him. Jesus did more than just visit you and I in prison. He went down to death itself to rescue you and I. And this is the gospel message. Jesus is the ultimate Timothy and Epaphroditus. In the beginning of chapter 2, in a verse that Pastor JP preached from last week, Paul gives us insight into the source of this joy. He says that he has fixed his eyes on Jesus, the one who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This is the joy that Apostle Paul has found. Jesus is the ultimate example of greatness through humility. And he is also the reason why we don't need to be afraid that serving someone else or receiving help from someone else makes us any less of a person. We can do that with freedom and with joy. I need to say that again. Jesus is the reason why we don't need to be afraid that serving someone else, becoming the servant of someone else, or receiving help from someone else makes us any less of a person. This whole letter to the Philippians, like we've said before, is the most joyful, most overflowing and bursting at the seams with gladness book in the Bible. 
Every chapter, every verse pointing us to an unspeakable joy and freedom that Paul has found in Christ. He lived his whole life trying to get ahead. He played that game. He, he went on the rat, rat race, right? He tried to prove something, trying to earn something, trying to reach some future mountaintop achievement and success. And he came crashing headfirst into the risen son of God. And that has done something so incredible in his soul. And that is that he is finally free. He is finally free. He doesn't need to climb the corporate ladder. He doesn't need to pander for admiration. He doesn't need to toil to bulk up his resume. He doesn't need to play into people's expectations of who he's supposed to be. He doesn't even need to live under the tyranny of his own ego and selfishness. He has tasted true freedom in Christ, where it no longer matters, even if he's in chains, even if he's persecuted, even if he's shipwrecked, he's free and full of joy. Because the joy that he has found isn't pegged to fame or influence or success or comfort or accomplishments. It's tethered and firmly anchored on the one thing that cannot ever be taken away, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is the same man in Romans 8 that says, no death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, no past, future, nothing in all creation can separate me from this love that I have found in Christ. Nothing can steal this joy. Nothing can take this away. He's found freedom and joy in Christ. And he invites us to do the same. From that place of freedom, he exhorts the Philippians and he exhorts us today. Even as he's in chains, he says rejoice. Rejoice because he's sending you Timothys and Epaphroditus's. He's providing for you in ways that you didn't ever anticipate. Through people, perhaps you never expected. In situations you never thought you'd go through, right? Rejoice because God is making you Timothys and Epaphroditus's. He's stripping us of our pride. He's stripping us of our adulation-starved egos. And most of all, rejoice because Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the almighty God who was there from the beginning and will be there in the end, he himself humbled himself and became the ultimate servant of all, the ultimate Timothy and Epaphroditus, showing us the way of servanthood, leading us into unthinkable joy and freedom, and demonstrating to us that on the other side of sacrifice and on the other side of suffering is joy. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And I'm going to ask this question of us today. Can you picture a church that models itself out of this? If we as Nephili members... If we as members were to embrace this heart and embrace this mind of humility, how could God move through this church? If we as staff and elders were to be more and more Christ-like in our demeanor and our service with every year, how could God move through this church? If our praise teams our hospitality teams and our tech teams and our video broadcasting teams, our children's ministry teams. If we could go into deeper and deeper and 
more joyful and more joyful service with every year. What kind of community could this become? What if our children, you know, we have so many babies in this community. What if our children could grow up seeing a whole community mobilized to love and serve one another sacrificially, not out to protect their own gain, not out to only serve their best interests, but to wholly love Jesus and wholly serve one another, filled with joy even through seasons of trials. What if our children could see that modeled for them? I believe that God's blueprint for the church and God's model for what we'll look like by the time this is all over, through our failings, through our imperfections, through our seasons of breakthrough and of battle, his blueprint for us is to look more and more like Christ. And so this is my exhortation to us as New Philly. Let's walk at our salvation this way. Let's dream together this way. Let's grow together and pray together and support each other in this way.